This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, April 29th, 2017. Today was supposed to be a return of the epic episode we had just two months ago with Jeffro Johnson, John C. Wright, and Razor Fist. Unfortunately, unfortunately, folks, due to circumstances beyond my control, due to circumstances beyond Razor Fist's control, he can't be here today. He is with a family member literally in the hospital. So he, he sent me a message about half an hour ago, let me know that he wouldn't be able to make it. And that's why we aren't able to bring him Razor Fist. But but both John C. Wright and Jeffro Johnson are here at the show, and uh, we're going to be talking about all, everything pulp in just a minute or two. I want to remind you of something real quick, though, because I, your host, have a responsibility to you, our audience. And I keep on reminding myself so that I can remind you of this, and I keep on forgetting which means that you haven't been reminded. So I wish to apologize to you, our listeners. YouTube, in their immense and mysterious wisdom, has decided that subscribing doesn't actually mean subscribing. So before I forget to mention this at the end of the show, which is when I normally shouldn't mention it, all of you who have subscribed... Take a look down by the button that you click subscribe below this video. You will notice there's a little bell there. That bell is the button for the double secret subscription. And for whatever reason, in their immense wisdom, YouTube has decided that if you have subscribed, but you haven't double secret subscribed, that you really don't want to receive announcements about when shows are scheduled or about when we're about to go live and all of that. So if you would like to receive those kinds of announcements, click on the little bell. And those of you who haven't subscribed, please feel free, click subscription and then click on the little bell. And then you will receive announcements when we have scheduled shows, when we are about to go live and things like that. They will come direct to you through the magic of the internet right into your email inbox. It's a wonderful, wonderful world that we live in. Were it not for the fact that YouTube has decided to pretend that that doesn't exist. But if you click the little bell, you will in point of fact receive these announcements. Now before I go and take a small sip of water to soothe my much abused throat i would like to turn the time over to my fellow host uh who is by the way getting a swelled head because his his brand new geek gab guidance on role playing was not just a tremendous success was not just the subject of compliments rolling in but has had people requesting to come on his RPG Geek Gab Gaiden. Even now, we have received multiple requests, and so he's quite feeling quite, quite excited about that. Go ahead, John, say hi. 
Hey, well, you said it all. Um, we did have a great show, and I'm feeling pretty high right now, and don't worry. I'll remember all of you when I'm at the top. That's reassuring. <laughs> Brian, how are you? Oh, I am taking a, a break from my hectic writing schedule. Um, working hard to come in under deadline for my first book with Castelli House, and looks like I'm going to make it. So feeling feeling pretty good, but uh, a little bit scattered. So we'll see how I do today. I'm going to do my best. Okay. Um, by the way, folks, John's RPG show was so good, was so compelling, was so interesting, that when Brian was forced to leave the show because of tasks he had to complete in order to finish editing two books. He actually couldn't stop listening to the show. He had to keep on listening all the way through to the end. His rational side of his brain was yammering at him endlessly saying, no, we have to go. We have hard work to do. And the other part of his brain, the creative part of his brain, the excited and energized part of his brain was just sitting, no, man, this is just so good. I just got to stay here, please. I can't go right now. So he stayed with us through the entire show. That's how good the RPG episode was. So if you want to go check that out, by the way, it is it is right now available, uh, of course, on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash geekgab. We talk about the old school revival, old school D&D, new school D&D, and we allow Jeffro to be as wrong as he wants about Dungeons & Dragons. Speaking of which... Jeffro is on the show. Do you want to say hi? Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me back. Really excited to be here. Can't wait to talk about Pulp. And last but absolutely not least, the most nominated human being, the most Hugo-nominated human being on the planet, author John C. Wright is on the show. Gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be here. I did not uh, see your famous RPG uh, show, unless I was that was when I was in, because I didn't click the little button that looks like a bell to give myself uh, information. You're talking about a different show, aren't you, or is that the one I was in? Yeah, we uh, we talked Thursday night. It was a it was a special sort of off schedule show. Uh, Daddy Warpig uh, called it a guide in. See now, I've, now I've missed the magic, and all the listeners who don't click the little bell shaped icon to get notifications. Maybe um, in the same boat, sinking boat as I was in. Hey, hey John, how many Hugo Awards do you have? Like what's none, zero, Zippo. Oh, 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 nominations then. How many? How many Hugo six. nominations? Number six. six. Now, wait. Technically, one of them was shot down on a technicality, uh, because that year they enforced a rule that they did not enforce against uh, Mr. John Scalzi, uh, and that rule is that if you put a draft of your work on online. Even if it's changed when it's actually published, that counts as first publication, and that that put one of my stories outside the uh, the time limit for that year. John, I've got some I've got some bad news for you then. And that is, I, I've got six Hugo nominations. Oh, well, were they all in the same year? Not all in the same year. No. Oh, excuse me. The record is for numbers of Hugo nominations in a given year. Okay, you're still safe then. Yeah, the the, the uh, I'm tied with uh, another person who got five. In terms That's of Hugo nominations over, over careers, I assume, you know, someone like, like Isaac Asimov or uh, 
We'll, we'll uh, Mike Blyer, who's we're one of 50 Hugos or something. We're going to pass up Isaac Kozimov soon here. Yeah, somebody, somebody got uh, has been nominated every year for 20 years, one of the tour crowd or one of the fan blogs or something. And that'd be Mike Blyer. Yeah. Yeah, he. I, I think he's got 50. That's kind of impressive, really. Well, it's impressive depending on what you think the nomination number is measuring. If it's measuring the number of, of friends and compatriots you have, it's a, it's a good number. Well, if it if it also measures, you know, even though yeah, there's there's a lot of, it's well understood what's wrong with the Yugos, but if it's also representing, like this guy isn't the best so and so around or anything, but like he's been part of the community for twenty years, right? And we appreciate his contributions. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I uh I can make no comment on that because my uh, father confessor told me to avoid the sin of wrath, so I uh I won't make any comment about that. I just got a note that said the uh the uh, uh Google Hangouts is adjusting my audio level, so I assume Google doesn't like what I'm saying and has just shut off my mic. This <laughs> it, we've got an AI running uh running things here. It's like it's the thought police. I, I think it's the computer from the role playing game Paranoia. I think it's the computer is your friend computer. Oh boy. So pulps. On to pulps. Now we had last time our show was an hour and a half long. And then uh Razorfist John and Jeffro talked about pulps for an additional hour and a half after the show. That uh, wasn't <laughs> recorded, wasn't broadcast. So um yeah, that was a show that was basically just for the six of us, I guess. Oh, <laughs> well, I'll that'll tell you to to uh, record things surreptitiously and then when you're low on material for new shows you can just put the post it up. Um, so my question is this, because I was just reading this article um, written by a gentleman who has no small amount of insight into things. It is entitled Ugly and the Beast, and it's talking <laughs> about the new Beauty and the Beast movie with Emma Watson, uh, who might be more familiar to you all as Hermione Granger from the eight Harry Potter books, or eight Harry Potter movies, excuse me. Is that um, how you pronounce her name? Hermione? Hermione, yeah. That's sorry how I pronounce it. So, sorry to interrupt. I, I couldn't, I've never been able to figure out how to pronounce well, it when reading. That's, Let me be that's, more the Greek, that's the Greek pronunciation of, of the character from mythology of that name. I, I don't know how they pronounce it in the movies. I, I myself pronounce it Hermione. I do not know how one pronounces it, but I pronounce it Hermione. Well, some people think it's Hermione. Some people are free to be as wrong as, as wrong as they wish. It doesn't bother me at all. Now, my question is this, though. Um, because I had this pointed out to me. Um, and by the way, folks, in case you're not getting the, uh, getting the irony here, Ugly and the Beast is an article written by John on his blog. And the person who tied it back into Pulp Fiction is, I believe, our other uh, special guest, Jeffro. And so what I was wondering is, and this is what I want to talk about. Last time we talked about stories. We talked about authors. And we talked about all this great stuff that, by the way, folks, you really should listen to that show. And you really should check out uh, the description underneath the video because I included all of the stories that John Wright recommended people read are listed there. So you can go right there and check them out and, and start reading really great stuff. But I wanted to talk about something a little bit different today. Um, I want to talk about, and there is someone else, by the way, um, who was is in the process of reviewing a book that is ostensibly John Mollison, by the way, is this, is reviewing a book that is ostensibly about 
pulp. It's ostensibly a collection of modern pulp stories, and the reviews are going to be coming out in the next few weeks on the Castelia House blog. The author completely botches it. He missed pulp 100%. He's got some of the um, trappings, the external trappings of pulp, but misses the core. So what I wanted to talk about in connection with Ugly and the Beast is, what is it about the pulps that speaks to people that so many modern authors miss? I would say, just as a, uh, a as a first pass, that it's the same core you just mentioned. The guys who wrote for the pulps were, of course, professional writers who were cranking up that stuff fairly quickly, and they wanted to hit the the sweet spot of uh, something that would appeal to a lot of readers and and really grab them, and uh, and they had a lot of competition with each other because at that time, in terms of popular entertainment, the radio has only been recently invented. The television didn't exist yet. And unless you were going to uh, get a book from the library, if you wanted to read something, you, you were going to read a you were going to read a magazine. And they were all over the place. They were in the railroad stations. They were they were everywhere. And so they always had uh, very dramatic, colorful, uh, lurid covers. And they always tried to to grab your attention right away. And so in order to grab your attention right away, what they did is they spoke to the, the simple, basic, tremendous things that every story is supposed to be about: uh, a man rescuing a woman, a guy being eaten by a monster from Mercury. A, a guy wrestling with eels in a, in a boiling uh, lava pool on top of a volcano. Uh, you know, secret societies, uh, spies, trains, cowboys, <laughs> uh, airships. The things, the things that were filled with color and excitement, exotic locations, uh, action, adventure, horror, uh, the strangeness of life. Everything that was different than the boring little train station where you were picking it up for something to read on your way home. Now, I, I, I don't know if I'm being too shallow when I, when I say that. I don't know if that's just, if that's just too obvious a, a remark, but isn't that the essence of Pulps, that they were meant to be popular and appealing? I, I, yeah, I think it goes, it, goes, it goes more than that. Uh, uh, when you when you put this into the the, the context of, of what has happened, because uh, uh, right now this uh, this past week over at at Black Gate uh, they put a uh, a post up. Uh, John O'Neill, the editor over there, it was about a uh, anthology taken from um, fan famous fantastic mysteries, which mm -hmm. practically all you know the 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 authors in appendix N that I reviewed. You know, the, you know the the earlier half of them. You know, not before the new wave. They're basically all in this anthology. This this sounds like the one of the most awesome collections of stories ever. And you know, looking at it, uh, the ones that I have read from it. Uh, uh, for instance, the A Merritt story in it is the Face in the Abyss, which is uh -huh. one of his his best stories. Yeah. It, it is just awesome. Um, you, you know, the, if the rest of the stories are as as well chosen as that one. Uh, then it is really good. Uh, C.O. Moore's story from there is uh, Damon, or Demon, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, I'm not Greek. Um, that one is absolutely fantastic. It, it's, it's something like uh, uh, Paul Anderson and Lord Dunsany and John C. Wright would write uh, that, that tale. Um, very interesting. And it's also something that you cannot imagine being written after about 1980 or so or being included in anthologies after about 1980 or so. Ah, well, you raise a good point, because I was trying to put my finger on what the pulps were, but I didn't say what they weren't. What they weren't was 
straight-jacketed. What they weren't was controlled. What they weren't was overly pasteurized for the consumption of a niche audience. What they weren't was pretentious. What they weren't was the slicks. <laughs> And it, you, but you look down at, at what's what's said in the comments, and I, you know I've caught a lot of flack um, because you know I write about these stories and I, I get really excited about how great they are, and uh, you know the peanut gallery uh, comes along, and, and and says things to the effect of you know oh well he acts like he uh, discovered Lord Dunsany you know he I, who is this guy that thinks he owns Lee Brackett now you know. Um, but you look at the coverage, uh, look at the, the science fiction and fantasy sites on the web from before Castalia House really took off, and you don't see the excitement. You, you'll see uh, uh, the, the damning of these stories with faint praise, if not outright uh, psychoanalysis of the tales and the authors together in a, ne in a very negative way. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, on uh, the comments uh, of this of this article about these great stories, um, uh, John O'Neill over there uh, writes uh, that the pulps are essentially kids' literature, oh, and on. and that the culture that produced the pulps is the product of centuries of sexual repression, and that you uh, get all these twisted things uh, in the in yeah, the, like like men like men who like women. I, I, well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there's there's uh, a phenomenon. Think, uh, the Bible is a kids literature. What about the Odyssey? Do they think uh, Odyssey with uh, its giant cyclopses and uh, so on is that is that kids literature too? What about uh, Milton? Milton's got the uh, angels in it. Is that, is that kids literature? What about Dante? Dante has ghosts in it. Is it ghost story kids literature? What about what about the guy who doesn't have any idea what he's talking about? Okay, <laughs> the guys writing the pulps were uh, well-read uh, uh, literary men. You can't you can't read them and not not see the references they're making to, to things. And uh, the, the sexual repression angle is just a um, a lot of times persons of a certain political persuasion. I won't use any. Uh, okay, uh, Morlocks. The the Morlocks <laughs> use that as an attack, and they've been using it since the days of Freud as a way of shutting up and shutting down anyone they thought it was convenient to bludgeon over the head. They just accuse the guy of having a subconscious uh, sexual. Uh, uh, perversion, and they use that to explain and to explain away. But they make they use it to make normal things seem odd and to make odd things seem normal. And and this this criticism, which is uh, <laughs> it's ubiquitous, it it is uh, in everything. Uh, you can't pick up uh, C. L. Moore uh, without having an introduction uh, from this critical frame uh, that puts uh, C.L. Moore on a spectrum with authors that she has nothing in common with, uh, politically I, I, and ideologically. It's because the guys who are uh, critics of that type, uh, the, 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 uh, the technical legal word for them is, is libel, uh, they themselves have sexual problems and they don't know how to deal with people who like stories about manly men who do brave things. <laughs> And they don't know what to do about stories about beautiful women who are attracted to manly men. And they don't know what to do about normal human relationships like friendships between, let's say, Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee. They don't, they don't have any categories in their minds for normal human emotional relationships because a lot of these guys are twisted. They're not properly socialized. They're, they're weird. 
I mean, I'm, I, I criticize no man for that. I'm, I'm as weird as I come. But I at least recognize what normal human emotions are, normal human emotions are supposed to be like. So when I read stories that glorify normal human emotions, I know what I'm seeing. And they, and they don't like that. They're like Gollum who can't eat the elfish and bread. So they have to make up something about the elvish bread has buried sexual problems and, you know, Conan's a rapist and whatever else, you know, Lancelot is a, is a terrible person. And uh, these, guys, these guys have to talk when they have nothing to say and they can't say anything good and they can't say anything neutral. So that leaves them with very little, to, very little uh, material to use for their, for their insult humor. Except I, it's not humor. They take it seriously because, you know, they're, they're Morlocks. One of the things the pulps do, and I, and I'm saying this right now because I think that the person at Blackgate, as wrong as they were, nevertheless was within spitting distance of an actual truth. If he was more widely educated or less steeped in postmodernism, um, he might have stumbled upon a a truth that he otherwise wouldn't recommend. Let's see you're writing a story in the 1930s. And for most people across the country, um, a lot of things that we take for granted nowadays are absolutely unthinkable. Um, and I'm, I want to try to explain this to those of you listening, because you have to imagine for just a second that this person grew up with uh, an entirely different culture, an entirely different set of moral assumptions. And these moral assumptions are baked into social mores. They're baked into the expectations of your parents, of your friends, even uh, your expectations for yourself. And that they have a lot of effects on how you view the world. And that it is something that we as modern people can't duplicate those social mores even if we're trying to write a story set in that time period because very very few of us can understand what it was like to grow up in the in that time and very few of us can even can communicate what that was like and even if we did a lot of modern readers wouldn't understand it, it and yet when you read the original stories Though the side effects of those beliefs, the side effects of those habits are very, very clear. And I want to I want to use as an example something that went up on the Castalia House blog. It's a section of text from a book called Brood of the Witch Queen by Sax Romer. This is the gentleman who created Dr. Fu Manchu. If you ever heard of that uh, infamous, honorable, evil insanely intelligent uh, Chinese man. This is a section of text from a completely different work. It doesn't have Dr. Fu Manchu in it, but that's the character you're probably most familiar with. So I'm going to read this. This is a quote. And then I'm going to explain to you what it has that modern literature lacks, and I'm going to tell you why. Her pale face formed a perfect oval. The long almond eyes had an evil beauty which seemed to chill. And the brilliantly red mouth was curved in a smile which must have made any man forget the evil in the eyes. 
But when we move in a dream world, our emotions become dreamlike too. She placed a sandaled foot upon the mud floor and stepped out of the sarcophagus, advancing towards Dr. Cairn, a vision of such sinful loveliness as he could never have conceived in his waking moments. In that strange dream language, in a tongue not of east nor west she spoke, and her sylvan voice had something of the tone of those Egyptian pipes who fill the nights on the upper Nile, the seductive music of remote and splendid wickedness. Here is what that has that we have lost for the most part between men and women in modern culture. There is, it has been a truism for thousands of years of human history that if you become involved outside of marriage, it wreaks great financial damage, uh, especially upon a woman. And so social mores grow up and become reinforced again and again and again because they work, because they're right, because they're practical, and they're also moral, and they're backstopped with religious beliefs. And so men and women, most, not all, obviously, there are always exceptions on the fringes, um, the men and women who are innately drawn to each other, who are innately drawn and sexually attracted to one another, don't have in their society quick and easy substitutes for sexuality. They don't have you know, pornography and other things. And they are not going to be able to act on those impulses, on those desires, on the man feeling uh, amorous towards a woman. They can't take action upon those, by and large, until they're married, because if they do, it will destroy their lives. And these restraints make people healthier, they make people happier, and they avoid a whole host of devastating outcomes. And what they allow for and this is the key that's being expressed in this paragraph, is a nearly unexpressible yearning. A yearning for something that can only exist when the goal or the object of your desire is out of your reach without making a great deal of effort to work towards it. I guess if you could think of it, think of if you've ever wanted to win a championship or you've ever wanted to uh, achieve an award, but you haven't been able to until you can work and work and work and achieve it. Now imagine that that was, that that length of work, that that length of yearning, of wanting to achieve something great, was applied to finding someone absolutely um, beautiful and, and wanting to be with them and wanting to be around them. That until you went through um, difficult processes, you wouldn't be able to achieve that. And at the same time, the person that you're feeling all of this yearning towards is evil and duplicitous and will destroy you and you know it. So you have all of this sexual desire and on top of that is all of this yearning for intimacy, for conversation, for touching someone and yet 
you also have this feeling of being repelled by this person because you know, no matter how beautiful they are, no matter uh, how glorious their laughter, no matter how they smile or move their head, that they are wrong for you, that they will destroy you just because they're a bad person. And so all of those things are packed into that paragraph and they're things that modern writers, for the most part, I'm not talking about every single modern writer, mind you, but they're things that the modern writer wouldn't even think about putting into the story, wouldn't even think about writing about because that experience is so alien to them. And I was thinking about this over the last week, about what you would need to do to a character to put them in a similar situation. And the only thing I could come up with is that the person would have to be so very staunchly religious that they are completely opposed to all of the morality, the sexual license and promiscuity of the modern world. And yet at the same time, that would even be different because it wouldn't be just an assumption that you had grown up with, an unconscious attitude. It would have to be something that you recognized in the modern world where taunt was wrong and had made the decision consciously several times over your adult life to not uh, be involved in the morality of the modern world, even if you have the opportunity. I so, think you've missed a trick because I think there's a better and clearer example of the closest analogy in the modern world to those things that are sensuous, lovely, dangerous, and unattainable. If you notice the how popular paranormal romances are these days, it's because women, having been robbed of the normal male characters from modern books who, who don't have any masculine characteristics, don't have anyone who is uh, of a higher rank than they are, who is dangerous, who is whose emotions are, are uh, uh, violent rather than gentle, except for things like, and, and who is forbidden, who is forbidden by society, except for things like vampires, werewolves, <laughs> and other monsters. And so the reason why vampires are portrayed not as disgusting leeches or, or vermin that are dangerous to human life, but as alluring ma uh, figures of masculinity is because the vampire and the werewolf are creatures that uh, will suck your blood if you're not careful. He might he will turn into a beast if you're not careful. But he is the alpha wolf. He is the most manly of men. He can kill any normal mortal who who crosses him, and he's dangerous. I can't think of any female equivalent of something that would be in a, in a modern viewpoint uh, alluring and forbidden because our whole whole modern point of postmodernism is to eliminate moral rules and therefore to forbid nothing. Uh, except for Christianity, of course. Uh, I mean, Christianity is forbidden, but everything else is allowed. <laughs> right? They, they said uh, taking away the the rules. But something like an elf queen, something like something that is not human and is dangerous, but is ridiculously beautiful. The uh, the evil emperor's uh, beautiful daughter, Princess Aura, or something. An evil space princess is, is the closest thing I could think of. But even that still requires the, the moral background that uh, Daddy Warpick was speaking of. Yeah, the, the rules are like a parachute to a skydiver. If you're skydiving, are you more free or less free without a parachute? So it's it's the devil's only lie, you know, that these these rules are external arbitrary impositions when really yeah. they're they're what makes humanity work. And it's always the same lie. It's always the lie that the bridge that's been provided to you is actually a barrier. Don't use the bridge, it's getting in your way. Tear the bridge down. It'll be easier to cross the gap without the bridge. 
so there's something in in the old stories that cannot be faked uh and it's outside the scope of most people's imaginations today because of culture because of a culture gap i um, think it's i think it's the difference between a christian and a post-christian culture i think that romance the way that the, the word is modernly is understood in the modern sense is a, in is a christian invention because it's a combination of the humility of chivalry and the warlike nature of of chivalry it's but, the idea of a humble warrior and when you when you take that idea and you apply it to erotic stories to romantic stories you have the the modern romance if you notice that even uh, couples who love each other like odysseus and penelope in the odyssey don't really seem to have the kind of uh romeo and juliet uh attitude toward love and romance that romeo and juliet typified and uh i would say shakespeare basically brought to the surface i'd say he he, he invented the modern idea those two people loved each other and were forbidden because the families were infuting with each other to, to attain. And, and so it was dangerous. The danger was there. Now, I think one reason why that's on a slightly different take on that, I think one reason why that's so appealing to any reader of romance is when you fall in love, you actually do encounter a danger to your ego. You have to kill your selfish version of yourself. The old Adam has to die so that the new, the new you can be born in the, in the, uh, in the marriage. Uh, and so something like that is also reflected in, uh, uh, the alluring and forbidden uh, woman. Uh, another another symbolic uh, resonance is the nature of sin. All sin is extremely attractive. It, it lures you in like the like the worm on the hook. So I mean, but, the, and, the worm but, is real. The, the, it's just the hook is going to kill you. But the, the typical modern story, though, uh, contemporary story, uh, even one that's trying to ape the pulp ethos, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it, it, <laughs> you'll get these uh, scenarios where you've got just this kind of guy uh, who's not particularly inspiring and this random attractive woman just kind of chooses him randomly <laughs> <laughs> well is there we only talked about the romance though is aren't there other elements of the moderns that kind of don't fit into the pulp ethos because most of the heroes of uh, um most of the heroes of modern books now i haven't read i haven't read a lot of books in the last like 20 years because so i'm a little out of date because i basically stopped reading when i started writing because i don't have any time left over uh, but a lot of the heroes don't seem all that heroic to me. They don't seem, they seem uncertain and nebbishy and like they're kind of shoved into the hero's role, usually against their will. Like they're, they're the chosen one that fate has decided just to well, uh, stick onto the battlefield without they themselves, you know, going to boot camp and doing the stuff you need to do to, uh, to prepare. It, it, it kind of goes back to what uh, Rick Stump was pointing out about uh, Conan. Uh, and and characters like that is that they they will just go do things just just because uh, I, I had and, Conan in mind. I also and, had in mind the detective from uh, Maltese Falcon and the sheriff from uh, High Noon. But like when you when do you do things that a man's got to do because he's got to do them. I mean, Conan is very much like a knight if, because he's got a code of honor that he lives by. But he never talks about it. He never he never displays it. He never shows it off. He never boasts about it. He, but he just does things like sticks up for a comrade even though he only met just met the guy or goes and rescues some girl even though he's got no personal stake in the matter right you, you, know what you, I mean? you fast forward to say uh, the, the the Michael Keaton Batman movie uh, and and a, a lot of the superheroes since then where everything has to be an origin story and everything has to have a personal motivation because you you're it, when you're in a post-christian society, you can't imagine 
things like honor and loyalty and and uh, a conviction about right and wrong being a primary motivation or just a kind of a background of, of how you expect to behave. And so they, they put in there, Batman has to become motivated because of, well, of course, no, no, it's not just some guy shot his parents. It was the Joker, the guy who became the Joker that shot it. And the, and the Joker can't just be crazy. It has Batman has to knock him into the vat. So now, <laughs> yes, now we have these two characters. Now they can fight because they here, both did this to each other. Here I will have to respectfully but firmly disagree. I think the story is better if it's the Joker that shot his parents rather than Joe Chill, which is what the name of the original guy was, because Joe Chill's not important enough. That that if you're if you're doing a revenge story, that finding the guy who killed your uh, wiped out your your ninja clan in Act One, and then you train for all of Act right. Two and Three, and then you go kill him in Act Four. That's a satisfying story. So I I think that what about Doctor Doom? Post Christian, but some of this might just be might just be uh, uh, the normal use of literary tropes. You add that spice to get an extra oomph out of the character. But, so does Doctor Doom need to go up into space with the Fantastic Four? In order oh, no, to get his good. origin story at the same time as the rest of the team. No, it's at that that was that was stupid. That was okay. poor writing as opposed to good writing. <laughs> Doctor okay. Doom is is jealous of Reed Richards because he blew his face off because he was trying to outperform Richards and couldn't do it. So, so that's that, the motivation of that character. The guy's envious, and he ruined his life. And he blames he blames his rival Reed Richards for it. So, so there, there's a depth in in these old stories. There's a, a there's a dimension to them that. Uh, the, the contemporary culture, it's outside of the scope of their imagination uh, in a lot of ways. You have another uh, layer of, of, of problems here. All of the people in the 30s and the, and the 20s and the teens would have all had the same reference points, the same classical uh, education, the, the same uh, histories, the same everything else. That, that, would be, that would be true even up through the 50s and early 60s because if you remember from uh, Robert Heinlein's uh, Glory Road, there's a long passage where the character speaks of what he wants in life, and it's all poetical references to older books or poems or stories that Heinlein was expecting his readers to recognize, but which it's, a modern reader is not going to know, is not going to catch the references. And, and then in all the, the writer workshops and the writer culture and the book blogging scene, before Castalia House blog, mind you, um, you have a phenomenon that's, that's been uh, called educated illiteracy, where you have all these, all these people are talking about books and they're really good at talking about books, but none of them read them. And so they say these things routinely that anyone had picked up a single pulp magazine would know uh, to be false. Yes. Uh, and, yeah. and yet they can just continue on this way without any danger of losing uh, credibility. And if someone comes along and says, oh, by the way, here's a fact that doesn't really fit in what you're saying, it just goes right past them. They don't need, it doesn't well, even, it doesn't even the register. Thing I think it's, the thing I think is funny, uh, Mr. Johnson, is that you and I come at this from opposite sides because I did all my heavy reading in the, in the 60s when every science fiction writer, reader I knew had read books from the 40s and the 30s. and, and and we knew that the pulps were our were our roots, and we weren't ashamed of our roots because we weren't we weren't ashamed of what we were doing. We were not ashamed of being science fiction readers and writers, and uh, back in those days. And then in the 80s and 90s, a sort of amnesia, which may have been deliberate, I, I suspect that it was, kind of fell, falls over the science fiction field, 
and they rebel against and forget about the previous books. Let me see if I can make this clear. A guy writing a book in the, in the 60s would have read books in the 40s and 30s and expected his readers to have done so likewise. Uh, you know. Uh, and the, the, uh, the pulps were, uh, by some uh, few maybe snooty literary types that you don't understand science fiction, uh, were, look, were, were regarded, held in, in disrepute. Uh, but those guys are snobs. I mean, those guys are people who are putting on an act of being snobbish when their taste is no better, no worse than mine. Uh, excuse me, their taste is actually worse than mine because they don't have any taste. They, they, they read, I mean, they read things for, for getting compliments from their, from their friends and neighbors or, or for, because they have ideological uh, concerns, not because they actually enjoy the story. Uh, uh, and, uh, excuse me, I, I, I laugh because uh, I've just been reading That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis to my children and I just got past the point where Mark Studdock, the main character, who has a modern education, realizes he has not read a book for his own enjoyment in years. All those guys are Mark Studdocks, except ones who don't get uh, changed before the end of the book. Now, sometime in the 80s or 90s, a lot of science fiction guys decided to become snobs, okay? <laughs> Which is about like comic book readers and writers deciding to become snobs. And when they just become snobs, they don't even do it as well as, let's just say, I do because I have a classical education and I've actually read all of these, you know, ancient Greek and medieval manuscripts and garbage, which they haven't, you know, so they're pretending to be literary giants when they're not even conversant with the genre they're criticizing. And it's exactly what you said. A single, a single book, a single magazine of amazing wonder air stories would, would have set them straight. And because they're, because they're making up theories about, Freudian theories about what's wrong with uh, Tarzan of the Apes psychologically, they don't have to back up anything to say with facts. They don't even have to read a Tarzan story. They just say things that, that, that sound good according to their ideology. And I, I think, I firmly believe it's all ideologically based. It's all, it's all based on this idea of, of trying to tear down the past in order to create some sort of utopian future where, you know, uh, nonsense will rule and we don't have to worry about God anymore. But, but it's, you know, the emperor has no clothes because I mean you have these people who haven't read the books who yeah. talk about them as if they are kid stuff uh, yeah. they'll come right out and say that uh, and then but they they still put out pulp themed anthologies uh, such as uh, Old Venus by uh, uh, some guy named I don't know Gardner somebody and uh, Gardner George, George R.R. somebody I don't know the you might have heard of these guys <laughs> I'm not sure um, I, I, in my, as little as 10 years ago, I, ha I held both those gentlemen in great respect, and I'm, I'm very embarrassed to see that Mr. Martin has decided to uh, take a nosedive for the sake of his ideology rather than, rather than be an honest man about, uh, about our, his differences with me. So the great thing about the uh, book blogging scene from the past uh, year or two taking off, uh, as we've got all these perspectives coming out now, uh, you know, people outside, uh, you know, People outside of the uh, the the industry, the uh, writing and, and and discussing and critiquing, um, we can now uh, see book reviews by people that have read uh, the, the classics <laughs> of the pulps, and they come and they look at something like Old Venus, uh, and you you can you can compare what they write about that with what they've written about uh, the, the classics, and if these if these uh, if the old stories are as facile. As the contemporary authors and editors claim, 
uh, if they if it's if they are as simple, why can't they compete? Uh, <laughs> because these the reviews for these, uh, for especially for Old Venus, um, they they are embarrassing. Uh, they're they're just it's just it's just cringe. Embarrassing because it's because embarrassing because it's all flattery. You mean? Uh, no, the the reviews are are negative. Ah, uh, okay. Like uh, I'm I'm thinking of. Uh, HP, uh, he's a Castillo House blogger. He he wrote a review of Old Venus last year, and uh, Dan Wolfgang uh, from QQ Media, yeah. he uh, he what, made one uh, in the past few weeks here on that book. Um, what he's what he's saying, John, is that the people who have come to book criticism that are posting on the web in the last year—that's when they've come to book criticism—have read the original pulps, and when they look at a book oh, that's supposed to be modern pulps, they're scathing because they just can't match up. Yeah. These guys have these these moderns have spent their whole careers mocking uh, honor and mocking courage, and then when it's their turn to write a story about a hero, they they don't know what what it is. They wouldn't right. recognize one if it hit over the head. Yeah, that's clear enough. So, is it possible for anyone who's modern to write a story that evokes the spirit of the pulps? I'm not talking about duplicating it exactly. And I'm not sure that would ever even necessarily be as successful as writing something that can speak to modern audiences while still evoking all of the essential elements of the pulps. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say writers are very subtle creatures and we're sneaky. So sometimes we can write things that we ourselves don't understand what we're doing. But I will also say, on the other hand, so, so I think it's theoretically possible, but I would not, I would not bet on it. Because modernism, postmodernism, and post-Christianity are specifically attempts to flatten the worldview of the, of the writer and the reader. Postmodernism is an attempt to halt the process of, of, of doing philosophy, of thinking deeply about things. Modern sexual relationships are an attempt to halt the romance of marriage and the beauty of the differences between men and women, between the sexes. All, all the attempts to uh, liberate people from uh, binary genderology or whatever the, the, the insane buzzword is of the madness that's overcoming the world these days, those things are all attempts to make complicated, deep, profound human issues into shallow surface features that uh, a, a, an idiot monkey could understand. So when you get people who are deeply seeped in the modern worldview, they're deeply seeped in shallowness. They have a profound lack of profundity. So for them to attempt something like, even, this, even the example you used, which is fairly simple, a woman who is beautiful in her smile, but evil in her eyes, that requires at least two levels of thinking, of the surface and the depth, okay? On the surface, she's beautiful. In the depth, she's evil. A, a shallow person can't grasp that concept that the inward and the outward appearances might not match. That's why the Beauty and the Beast article of mine that you referenced earlier at the beginning of the episode, that's why they, the modern people couldn't do it. They couldn't grasp the concept that, that the ugly man might actually have the soul of a prince and the prince-looking man might actually have the soul of a monster. Even though they, even though they, they did a paint-by-numbers, step-by-step version of the older story, which, which you know, comes from the... Uh, that's, that's even older than the pulps. That's even more... More respectable. That comes from fairy tales. I mean, that comes from old wives' tales. So uh, I will say that in theory, a modern guy, if he was cunning, could do it. But I don't think a modern guy who was loyal to modernism could no. do it. 
Right. Uh, the, the, the problem is uh, uh, when you've been cut off from the roots and you yeah. don't know yeah. it, people, the people who have been cut off from the roots and that aren't aware of it. Uh, uh, there's a blogger, uh, Dean McSmith, who has come in and he's read almost like, like three appendix end books a week for a while. Um, and it's interesting. Uh, it's interesting watching the reactions from the people that are doing this. Uh, <laughs> first, I, I raved over uh, Jack Vance, and uh, uh, and I, I took a lot of heat for being critical of Zelazny for some of the cultural uh, shifts that were yeah, happening and, and in his work. He, he, he deserves because because Jack Ashada is a great book. Um, and that's and that's fine. You know, I took that heat and I praised Vance to the sky. And then I watch these new guys coming in. I, I assume they're you know ten years younger than me, or so maybe in their early thirties, uh, late twenties, somewhere in there. Uh, they get a hold of of Robert E. Howard and Edgar Rice Burroughs, and which I thought would be a hard sell. I thought that would be something hard to persuade people to get into because I, maybe that's just my taste. But there's the, the some a lot of these people. There's a significant audience of people who like undiluted heroism. Yeah. And they love it. And when they come off of that high and pick up Jack Vance, whom I love, and Roger Zelazny, whom John C. Wright loves, um, they they aren't into it. It doesn't punch the same buttons. That's not what they're looking for. And and it takes them a lot longer to gain an appreciation of what was happening during the new wave new wave period. Um, uh, well, similarly, Zelazny and Vance were both were both doing kind of tongue-in-cheek commentary. Neither of them wrote heroic characters. In fact, Zelazny went way out of his way to make as cynical an anti-hero as, as he could in a character like Shadow Jack or a character like uh, Corwin of Amber. And Jack Vance is always writing rather bitter tongue-in-cheek kind of film noir fantasies with his dying earth and such. Right. So uh, I come, I am not surprised that fans of, of, of uh, Howard and, and uh, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs don't, don't really care for the those two guys, because they're they're about as opposite as you can get, and still be still be inside science fiction. So so you, so you have the, the you have a guy like uh, Dean McSmith come along, and uh, you know it's interesting where he says because he's talking about gaps in his uh, education, gaps in his reading. Yeah. And uh, C. L. Moore, uh, it was for him, like I've been trying to tell people, absolutely astounding, absolutely mind blowing. Uh, and just how how vivid it is, how engaging it is, how well crafted it is, it's it's just fantastic. Um, so what, what flipping back to the authors, um, yeah, and you know they have these gaps first. So there's there's all this literature that they're cut off from, and they can't imagine how this was done, which puts them at a huge disadvantage. What they can't um, imagine how the literature was done, or how the how the cutting off was done. Uh, they all of this stuff is is new stuff to people that are uh, starting writing with. <laughs> Five, you, you know, that's one reason why I like reading your articles because it was new to you. It was kind of shocking to me that that I didn't realize there was a generation gap between science fiction writers until uh, you pointed out that it existed, and that you and I were on opposite sides of it. Because to me, both Roger Lasney and Robert E. Howard are, you know, old friends. But it, it, and it's it, it's been suppressed though. I, yeah, I've gotten I've gotten to me. I've one gotten, of these guys. One of the Hugos are going toward these guys who can't write because no one, no one reads the stuff that's any good, and they don't know what they're supposed to be comparing it to. So, so you have these aspiring authors who are stumbling around in in the darkness, uh, trying to come up with something awesome. And 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 what's happening when they send in their manuscripts? I had one guy tell me that he sent him something to the uh, Weird Tales revival, 
and the editor rejected his work because it had too much wonder. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then there's there's a uh, uh, JD Brink. Uh, he's he's a new author. He's been published in Kursova magazine. Uh, I really liked uh, uh, his uh, one of his military science fiction stories that he did. Um, he, he his uh, second uh, collection. Uh, I have to look it up and make sure I get the name here. Uh, but it had three stories that he couldn't get sold. Um, and the first one is is fantastic. It was I, I really liked it. Uh, I when I was reading it, I thought it was uh, going to be the best story ever. It, it, like it could have been like a Starship Troopers two hundred page novel. Uh, without the puppy spanking stuff, right? It, it would have been absolutely, the, the, the world was vivid, the, the character was engaging, um, the action was good. He, he had in there uh, uh, as one story that he did, and he couldn't, no one was interested in this stuff. I look at this guy's work, and I'm like, this guy could have been a, another Fred Saberhagen, uh, who, with a little bit of editorial direction, uh, would have been, you know, when he got going with his novels after doing a whole bunch of short stories could have really done some awesome things. And I, but the editorial establishment does, doesn't see that this doesn't register to the editors for some reason. I don't, I don't know why. Um, but he, he did have in there uh, a one pulpish style story. It was written kind of uh, as, as a, a pretend future story of, uh, of uh, uh, in the future, the entertainment of, of this, of this uh, science fiction planet. And uh, so it's sort of tongue in cheek, uh, but the the relationships, the human relationships in it, uh, you, know, you know, me being completely immersed in, in pulp, I, it, it, it's really hard. I struggle with it because um, because of, uh, of the culture gap, you know, the, the lead is, is not is simply not a leading man. Uh, and he's and he's in a leading man type role. And it it's, it's just cringeworthy to kind of see him not pull it off. Um, yeah, because that's that's one of those that's one of those dangerous things. See, I'm not I'm not I'm not dogmatic about what tropes can and can't be used in pulp be because it seems to me that that Hamlet by Shakespeare is the leading man doesn't have what a leading man takes. Uh -huh. If Conan the Barbarian or even Othello or John Carter, Warlord of Mars, had been put in a Hamlet situation, he would have just killed Claudio with his longsword and his radium pistol in Act One, and the story would have been over. So, so while there are times when you can get away with having a, a, a nebbish as your main character. In fact, um, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs did that in, in his book Cave Girl. This guy who's completely, completely not heroic gets thrown, you know, thrown back into the past, or excuse me, not thrown back into the past, but he meets a, uh, he encounters a primitive, primitive tribesman. Uh, so, be that as it may, but I have such sympathy for a guy who doesn't even know what he's been deprived of. And, and, and that's exactly that I agree is that I think this was done deliberately. Yeah, I think well, this was done it, by the social mavens, by the same guys who who ruined uh, you know the slick magazines back in the thirties, and that was done deliberately. They they there was I can't I can't bring the guy's uh, uh, name to mind at the moment. Uh, uh, Dave Wolverston of uh, uh, a, a science fiction writer wrote a, a wonderful essay on this point, where he pointed out that the social movements in the uh, in the late nineteenth century and the early twentieth century as a matter of deliberate policy, decided to write stories not about heroes, not about oriental secret societies, not about train wrecks, not about uh, you know airships and voyages to the moon, but about ordinary people doing ordinary things that you could read about in a newspaper. And this was done as, as part of the communist uh, worldview and mindset where they were trying to glorify the working man and to show that uh, 
the falsehood of of the Christian worldview of the surrounding Western culture, which does romanticize romantic things. I mean, it basically does. Uh, and so all the action, wonder, and adventure that used to be in mainstream stories, I, I've, I've mentioned Homer, I've mentioned Virgil, I've mentioned Milton, I've mentioned Shakespeare. Shakespeare had witches in his stories. He had ghosts in his stories. He had, he had the fairy king Oberon in his stories. In addition to having, you know, historical figures like kings and emperors and so on and so forth. And he didn't write about ordinary things happening in an ordinary way to ordinary people. And somehow the extraordinary got moved into, uh, got driven underground. And, that, and, it, and it surfaced again in the most unlikely place possible, which was the pulp magazines. The reason why I am an admirer of the pulp is because there were all the, the, that's where all the storytellers went when they were driven out of academia by the snobs. And they told real stories. And we should emphasize, they told them in a short fashion because the competition was fierce and the page count was limited. So they could not take a trilogy like I take to tell a short story. They had to tell it in a short story. And that gives you some, that imp imposes a discipline that many moderns, uh, present company of myself included, lack. Yeah, Every, everything uh, written after 1980, to me, for the most part, uh, particularly novels, novel series, all of it feels like uh, the television series Lost to me. It, it, <laughs> when you compare it to, to Robert E. Howard and C.L. Moore, all they were of tight. it. Those guys are all tight of writers. It feels like I am not getting a payoff. It, it feels like uh, no one knows where they're going with this, uh, and, and there's just no artistry to it. It's just, it's just this, you know, uh, you know, like an, you know, oh, okay, so you kill, you, you, you kind of make me sort of like this character, and then you kind of sort of kill them off in a dramatic way. You're, you, you're not going anywhere with this. There, there's no story here. Mm -hmm. It's all tease, no payoff. And That's what Lost was. Now, I, I did look at, uh, I, I, you know, when I was doing Appendix N, I would occasionally, uh, a lot of people told me, read something after 1980, read something 1980 after 1980. And, it, you know, when I've got unread Lord Dunsany books, <laughs> it's like, why? You know, I don't, hey, I don't see the, why. Get the Dunsany books that have the Arthur Syme illustrations. They add so much uh, depth and character to the, to the stories. They, they really make it come to life in your imagination. So, so I would I would peek up every now and then just to see like a, like a, a story from Asimov's uh, uh, magazine uh, appeared in Clark's World, and <laughs> it was uh, so just so so juvenile. Uh, everything that they say about the pulps, it was just it was pathetic. Shallow. But that's but that's my point. The pulps are actually deep, and these guys who pretend that they're deep are actually shallow. They're shallow people pretending they're deep. They're stupid people pretending they're smart. So I, and they don't I, know, and they don't know how it's done. Say, it's, it's and, driven by envy. A lot of these guys. Now, I'm not saying all modern writers by any. I'm not saying they're all shallow and stupid. But I'm saying, the snob, the guy who tries to put on airs of being right. superior because he likes stories with stupid endings. That that somehow gives him a halo of being a saint. Like he can somehow see things that that you're that, that are imperceptible to you. Well, some of it's just a, a difference in taste, and some of it's a difference of what, you know, kind of mood you're in. But right. some of it is is, uh, uh, is just a chicanery. It's just it's just a an act to put on that they put on. Right. I was gonna I was gonna say when you talk about things having no payoff, um, I was very amused and pleased when the author Jack L. Chalker 
was quoting a review of one of his books, and the reviewer thought that Chalker did not know where he was going to go. He thought he'd painted himself into a corner. He thought there was not going to be a big payoff. And Chalker, as he was telling the story, throws back his head and laughs and says, I outline my books. I have, I've already written the end, the end of the book. I know exactly what's going to happen. So, you know, the, the, the pros do their homework. They, they, they should be able to pay off with a satisfying payoff. You know, if they can't, they're not doing their job. They're not, they're not, they're not giving the, uh, the reader his, his, uh, his money's worth. His harder, and we're competing, by the way, that we're competing for the reader's beer money. We're competing for their entertainment money. And that's more precious than money spent on groceries because that's your fun money. You know, we, we had better we had better have good payoffs in our stories. We had better give the readers what they want. Otherwise, we're going to be out of a job. And worse, uh, who cares about being out of a job? Otherwise, we're going to insult them. We're going to offend the trust that they put in us. We're going to betray their, their trust. So if excitement and wonder got driven out of serious literature and ran to the pulps, um, where did it go when it was driven out of science fiction and fantasy? Now, it's actually a rhetorical question because uh, I've discussed this with Jeffro before on Google+, um, and I've pointed out some things before in uh, pieces I've done at the Castalia House blog, but um, I would commend to you the audience to think on this, that the people who kept the flame of hope, the flame of fun, the flame of imagination alive were people who had to flee to genres and places that were considered to be disreputable, were considered to be um, below the, uh, beneath the contempt of the snobs, beneath the notice of the snobs. And some of those are, shockingly enough, Saturday morning cartoon shows <laughs> in the 1980s. I'm, I'm, I'm not joking. Absolutely, I am not joking. No, I'm laughing because I'm agreeing. I'm laughing um, because I'm agreeing because the cartoon shows had the same elements we mentioned about the pulps. They didn't have a genre straitjacket. They didn't have an ideological overriding purpose to which the writer had to conform, and they were meant to be fun. Yeah. They were meant to be uh, 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 not just uh, edifying, but also entertaining. I, I just watched this uh, Voltron episode from 1984, and it had it had a princess in it, and and there was this new guy, this the space prince came, and and he he impressed her, and she blushed, and I was like, whoa, I haven't seen that in 30 years. I mean. Uh, you know the Disney movies. The girls in the Disney movies can't blush anymore. They used um, to. They used to be really cute, really feminine. And and uh, you know there was there was kung fu. There was fist fighting. There was giant robots fighting. There was and there was, there was a witch. Monsters. There, a witch? there, there was, was a witch, a witch who was casting spells on things. <laughs> I was like, this is all. I mean, you got right. you've got everything. You've got right. everything. Um, I, I was like. I, I I I really can't. I mean, it's 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 not an it's not a trying to be artist artisty at all. But it was like, yeah. I find no fault in this. <laughs> um, he Man and the Masters of the Universe, Voltron, GI Joe, Transformers, um, Thundar the Barbarian, and and I Thundar the Barbarian was particularly pulp in its in its aesthetic and its mood. And so was Pirates of Dark Water. I don't know if you guys remember that one. It it didn't last very long, but it was yeah, it was a really good one. Dark but my favorite, I'm older than you guys, my favorite was Space Ghost, and my favorite was the Fantastic Four when it originally came on in the, uh, in the 60s. They, they had actually a robot? stuck very closely. No, not the one with the robot. The, <laughs> one, the ones that stuck very closely to the original scripts. 
and, and they even had a bit of the Jack Kirby look to them. Comics also, uh, before the era of Watchmen and before the era of the Dark Knight Returns and uh, before the era of the other, you know, dark postmodernist comics. The um, fun era, you mean. Yeah. The Silver Age, uh, the Silver Age especially, um, is where a lot of the ethos of the pulp was carried on. Yeah, I, as, I, as I looked, uh, I've, I've read more and more contemporary stuff uh, since completing Appendix N, um, and I, I was really afraid to read Kursova magazine when it came out. Uh, I just didn't want to, uh, I mean, they, they said that the Appendix N sort of, uh, kind of had an influence on it and so i was like well, what if it stinks i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to read like i can't review it uh objectively and i, I don't want to i don't want to know you know um uh, <laughs> poor, so I, poor I, Jeffra. I must i must be your favorite author because of course i read all appendix n when i was young and i've never i've never moved on my tastes have not changed so i still write things in the same in the so same I, mood I, so i started yeah. reading a lot more short stories uh this year I've, i got up to uh, 11 so far i've done about 800 word to a thousand words reviews on and i'm mixing in the Kursova is the latest Kursova issue uh with if things i pick up elsewhere and um i have got to say uh that uh i am surprised at just how good uh that magazine is um uh, very good it's, it's i was i was there and actually contributing i don't know if it's my fault to things like isaac asimov and uh, uh FNSF when they started going downhill and they started going downhill basically for all the reasons we're talking about the straight jacket became tighter the the sense of wonder was leached away and just the editorial decisions started being motivated by by factors other than the desire to uh, to edify and entertain the readers by the way the editor of Trusova is in the chat and he is pleading for people to send him more pulpy stories especially with evil princesses so get to work <laughs> Yeah. And, and and judging uh you know just coming right off the appendix n survey and, and and doing getting started in a contemporary survey um how how good is it where are these authors uh i'm i'm placing them as better than uh a charles offit uh anthology from the 70s uh oh. we have we have stories that are better than that wow um, uh, I, I remember that. I mean, to me, that's contemporary. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah, but I'm not, you know, uh, some people will, will, will say uh, that some of these stories and authors are as good as Howard or as good as uh, Vance. I, I can't quite, I'm, I'm glad people are that excited, um, but it, it's sort uh, yeah, of that's, in, that's, that's it's in that range, um, which is when you look at people like say Jim fear 138, who the only place he had was lights, light speed. And he's, 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 um, he's re he's getting these stories and listening to story after story for the one pretty good story out of 40. So to kind of scratch the itch, you know, for, for guys like that to come in, uh, and guys like the mixed GM people that think that science fiction and fantasy has, is basically dead and not serving them at all. You know, for these guys to come in and get a magazine, where the stories are at this caliber, uh, it it's it's a really huge deal. Um, a lot of it, a lot of science fiction is dead. I uh, just to use one small example from my from my life, the first story that I ever got published in an anthology was in an anthology, and mine was the only story that took place in outer space of the dozen 
13 or 14 stories that were in there, except for a story by Ray Bradbury, who had donated one to the anthology. <laughs> so he and I were old school, and you know, no one else was. So yeah, I had a I had an Asagasimov. I have to say, say Jeffro, you ought to do what I was trying to do, and time does not permit me to do it. I got a box of books from the Lynn Carter's uh, adult Ballantine fantasy series that really formed the backbone of fantasy, of the fantasy movement in the in the seventies. Oh, yeah. And I was planning on trying to do you know one periodically and write up a review for the Castelli House blog, and I just don't have time to do it. So after you're all done with Appendix N, you should try another book <laughs> of, just, of of looking and seeing uh, what what Lynn Carter did for the fantasy for modern the modern fantasy genre because I think he is to fantasy what uh, uh, John W. Campbell Jr. is to hard science fiction. I, I considered doing that, but I figured my lack of a classical education would kind of show through a little more. <laughs> there's, there's actual literature in that. Um, it's, it's some serious stuff. Oh, the, the, the Nightlands by William Hope Hodgson. I don't know if that counts as literature or not. No, I'm partly kidding. See, at this point... This is the moment in the show where I, I feel like I should jump in with a question to keep the conversation moving, but I can't think of a question right now. Um, we, have to, we have to ask uh, uh, Brian or John to say something because they haven't talked yet. I've, I've got a question from, from the chat. Someone's asking if Robert Lynn Aspirin's myth series would count as pulp. I thought it was kind of a parody series. I, I maybe I don't remember it clearly enough to answer. I'll, I'll recuse myself. Uh, from the um, myth series, which I've read several times, I've read it probably. It's possible I've read each book in the double digits, um, and it's one of the first books I picked up when I uh, moved to America and got access to uh, an English language library, and I picked up another fine myth. I love the series. It's a great series, but it is. A, it, it began as a parody of bad fantasy writing. And one of the things I didn't have a chance to mention earlier when we were talking about what isn't in the pulps that is in um, modern writing is a sense of irony. Um, Amen. It is whatever their other... The pulps are not self-conscious. Yes. Whereas a, a show like Shrek is supposed to be ironic when it approaches fairy tale materials, whereas the animated Beauty and the Beast, the original one, which we mentioned before, is not ironic. It's supposed to have it's supposed to capture the magic of a fairy tale. And and likewise, the pulps were supposed to try to capture the excitement and the and the color and the action of the railroads, the old west, the uh, uh, sailor stories, outer space stories, and and weird tales. Yeah, uh, I, I get questions like this all the time, uh, where they, where people hear me talking about the pulps, and and they have their favorite series, uh, and they don't read and they don't read things before 1970 or so or 1980, uh, and they really want the thing that they like to be as cool as what I'm saying the pulps are, and and I, this kind of question is inevitably going to lead to hurt feelings. <laughs> um, it, it just it's it's not going to work. Uh, so, so it, I could go into why, but it that will hurt your feelings even more. I don't know who this is, 
I'm just speculating here. Um, this has happened repeatedly. Um, you really need to go read uh, uh, A. Merritt's uh, Dwellers in the Mirage. You need to read uh, uh, the best of C.L. Moore. Uh, you need to go and experience some of this stuff because until you do, uh, you can't. You simply can't imagine how different it is. And if and if you're picking out some things and what we're describing and saying, oh, I see some superficial similarities. I see some. It's not. It's not that different, is it? Is it? My stuff is that cool, isn't it? It's not. That, it Daddy Warpig in his in his essay, I forget what the name of the essay was, pointed out that it's like the difference between painting in grayscale, painting with pen and ink, and painting in full vivid colors. It's just it's just a difference that's remarkable. And I, I think uh, you know tying it back to the cultural issues. Uh, you know when I, I go to movies now and I see these characters and none of them are likable because the things that make <laughs> characters likable and that make you care about them you, and that you make, saw, you, want, you, you saw that make you want to see them uh, get married and, and, and reproduce, those kind of feelings, <laughs> um, they, they're just not there. We have a culture that can't imagine the things that go into that. That's why it's, superhero movies were so, are so popular and that's why their popularity is dropping, by the way. The superhero movies are popular because they came from 1960s. All of those characters were made up in the 60s. Okay, even even the even the raccoon from uh, from Guardians of the Galaxy. They're all they're all 60s and 70s characters. Back when the guys writing the books read the stuff from the 40s and the 20s, so they put normal human emotions into their stories and the simple basics of heroism. Uh, and people were so tired of not. I mean, we don't make westerns anymore. So we don't have any story that confirms the American value of a man with a gun who has to violently make sure that law and order prevails because if he doesn't, no one will. That's, that's kind of the basic Western, uh, uh, Old West view of America. We, we're supposed it's to be a self-made men who go out into a wilderness and make our own lives for ourselves without, without blaming other people and without depending on other people. That's, that's the... That's the that's the mythical character of America, uh, without speaking about the historical reality or not. And superheroes had that for a long time. And when I say for a long time, I mean once it's popular, the snobs, the social justice warriors, and the other parasites try to move in and turn the energy and the excitement toward their purposes, which is to drain energy and excitement out of stories because people filled with energy and excitement are not easy to rule. Uh, but you know, C.S. Lewis uh, saw this trend. Uh, you know, he he predicted what was happening uh, at, on the educational side in the abolition of man, yep. and uh, it went to work. Then this is this is like in, in the 30s and 40s when he's observing this. Yep. Um, and uh, by the, by the time the 70s rolled around, and you had Alexander Solzhenitsyn explaining some of this, he he was like a modern day de Tocqueville, uh, looking at American culture. And you know he could he diagnosed America then in the seventies as not being able to imagine courage anymore. That that was the end goal of the abolition of man. Um, yeah. And and now now we're sitting on top of another forty years of of that being uh, cut out from under us. So uh, it, it's it's more unimaginable than you think. And the thing things went sideways far earlier than you uh, can imagine. I, I've been I've taken I've been taking some heat at Castillo House blog uh, for people are claiming that oh they're rewriting the science fiction and fantasy narrative uh, but we're not we are not rewriting the narrative no these, we, they're we the are, guy 
they're the revisionists. They're the ones who want to who don't see where the roots of these things are. And even when and even when uh, uh, C.S. Lewis was writing in the forties, when he wrote Abolition of Man, it was still during the War Years, by the way. Those things intellectually had been hanging around since before the time of G.K. Chesterton, a generation earlier. The bad ideas come from the universities, and it takes them ten or twenty years to seep down to the intellectuals, and then they go from the intellectuals to the through the artists to the general populace. And then it requires a generation or two after that to incubate until the time comes when the, even the general populace just accepts without question the basic uh, nihilism, the basic subjectivism, the basic idea that there's no such thing as right or wrong. That was, that was invented in, by German pessimists from the 1850s. The thing is, I mean, the thing is, technically the thing goes all the way back to Garden of Eden, <laughs> but, but specifically these ideas that we're seeing in ruining science fiction ruined the fine arts, uh, you know, 50 years and 100 years before you and I came on the scene. Right. And the, these these authors that we are talking about uh, from the, the 19-teens, the 20s and 30s, yeah. these these are uh, quite simply the science fiction and fantasy canon. They, they defined the field. They, yeah. they, they worked out what it was, uh, what, we, what we would think of it as being. Um, they... They are it, um, yeah. and the the narratives that you see uh, in L.A. review of books, uh, uh, these a lot of blogs, things like that. The narrative is is that Mary Shelley uh, woke up one day and invented science fiction. Uh, <laughs> a few decades wow. later, there was a, a couple guys, Wells and Verne, and then it skipped up uh, to uh, John Campbell and his three awesome people of the golden age. The so-called the golden the age, awesome of which A.E. Van Vaught has never remembered as one of the big three. <laughs> but it, the Asimov, and so it's just as everybody, uh, it's Asimov, Pylon, and Clark, and uh, then there's like a, a a big push against that. Uh, those those are the guys that are seen as as pushing the women out of science fiction, um, and so. <laughs> So that, that's the that's the story where they okay. get that from. If they I'm start... old enough to remember when Robert Heinlein was regarded as the biggest friend of the feminist movement that was in science fiction, because like like most libertarians uh, of that day and age, he was perfectly in favor of all the things that feminists of that day and age claimed to be in favor of, which was the the, the Orwellianly named sexual uh, liberation movement. Uh, and I I. And I just have to put in a word for for uh, Heinlein and Asimov and Van Vogt. Uh, the the Hemingway became popular because of the experimental methods of writing that was popular among the literati the generation earlier. His was the only one that caught on with popular readers, and certain types of uh, hard-boiled detective stories adopted his method of writing, trying to write in a more uh, more the way real people talk and less the way uh, Victorian gentlemen talk. If you see where I'm going with this. Heinlein adopted that same knack into science fiction. And that's practically all he is. That that vaulted him to the to the number one spot. His ability to do that because it makes for really easy, uh, uh, really entertaining writing. But the uh, the in the same way I dismiss the snobs who look down on the pulps, I also dismiss the snobs who look down on hard SF for not being pulps. It's not pulpish because it's not meant to be pulpish. John W. Campbell Jr. was trying a different approach. Anyone who's boasting about the scientific accuracy of his of his story uh, is free to boast if he wishes. I, I boast myself about the scientific accuracy of my hard SF, but it's not a reason to look down your nose at a guy who's not doing that because he's trying to 
<laughs> it's like the difference between Roger Zelazny and, and Robert E. Howard. They're trying for different effects. They're guys who photograph things in black and white to get, to get black and white effects you can't get in color. And there's guys who do it in color because there's effects you can't get in black and white. See, th things were going so well, so well, until three minutes ago. Because you because you don't want me calling you a snob. <laughs> yeah, um, you'll get used to it. No, the uh, um, the, the whole thing with um, when when you look at at the context of of, of having uh, Stanley D. Weinbaum, uh, old style Jack Williamson, A. Merritt, and and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, those guys, uh, you know, and e even H. P. Lovecraft uh, would have been defined as as science fiction. Uh, uh, and and uh, uh, you know, Robert E. Howard's Conan stories have science fiction elements in them. Sure. Uh, the the move, uh, the generational shift that happened in the wake of Campbell. Um, it it was not just a redefinition of science fiction. You know, to create a golden age, then uh, the pulp authors had to be torn down uh, first. Uh, the whole the whole literary movement was predicated on that. Uh, second, no, that's not uh, second, true. Second, I mean, there there these, may have been guys, writers who who said that or who claimed that. I'm I'm thinking of Damon Knight, and Damon Knight is a snob. But there's also writers like A.E. Van Vogt who didn't have any problem with writing very pulpy style stories, and had no problem with writing with hard SF, and had no problem with getting a sense of wonder in their stories. But, but um, secondly, secondly, they those guys are where a a, a popular conception of science went from being uh, just another form of knowledge that you would use in your stories to make it more real or more realistic or more interesting or, or more plausible. Uh, they are part of a cultural pulse that is identical to what you see in uh, guys like, um, like Carl Sagan, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and and Bill Nye the Science Guy. It wasn't just science as as no. They, they, were trying, they, were, they were definitely trying to glamorize science. There's no question. No, I agree I, with you there. I have to I have to interject at this point because we are getting down to the last like six seven minutes of the show. <laughs> I apologize <laughs> for having to cut the discussion off. We'll have, uh, we'll have to have this discussion about about uh, snobbery against hard SF at some other time, I guess. Um. Can I get a but, question? Yeah, do we have a do we have any other questions from the audience before we start wrapping up? We do. Dr. Jeep asks, can hard SF elements coexist in a pulp story? Read my stories. <laughs> what a what a ridiculous question. I feel personally fun. Yeah, read my stuff. That's, that's I do it. I do it all the time. So does that even vote? I, I, I see I, I see uh, the hard SF phase uh, to be inherently anti heroic. Uh, and it, oh, humbug. even looking at something like, uh, say, Philip K. Dick's The Man in High Castle, uh, it, it's part of a generation of people who didn't have the kind of talent that a guy like A. Merritt did, who, who, who was content to create science fiction, fantasy, and horror and weird tales on the side as, as part of his, you know, as just a, a, a side job of his, of his real career. Um, these are people that were looking for some way to push down and uh, to, to, to kind of puff themselves up a little bit, uh, to give them a little bit of spin. And it's, 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 it's where the kind of snarky spirit of, of 
we're so much smarter than those dumb guys before the post-Christian age comes in, which is, which is, it's like oil and water to heroism. Um, let, me, let me, let me tell you a quick anecdote about that. One of the, uh, one of my favorite books of all time, in fact, I would say my favorite book is uh, World of Noe by E. Van Vogt. And the reason why I like that book so much is because the heroism of the main character there is based on the fact that he is more sane and more morally upright than his than the people he's he's surrounded with. And I don't think and he actually was a heroic character. He was a self-sacrificing character. Uh, so I don't think that's quite fair. I, I will say that if you're going to talk about Asimov and Heinlein, yeah, their their characters are not heroic. In fact, I would say Michael Valentine Smith is an anti-hero. But I will. I will not agree that those two things are necessarily incompatible. Let, let me give. You, let me give a single example because we're running out of time. Damon Knight, who I think is a snob and who tried to drive heroism out of science fiction, famously mocked A.E. Van Vogt in a store in a essay called uh, "Cosmic Jerry Builder," and he tried to claim that Van Vogt was not sufficiently scientifically grounded, that he uh, 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 had stories that had made no sense of them and that they were dreamlike in their logic and, and not well-crafted and so on and so forth. And it was just the same kind of psychobabble nonsense that you've referred to where people say that Conan is based on sexual malfunctions or, or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? Right. Where, where people are just slandered for make-believe psychoanalysis by non-psychiatrists of men they've never met. <laughs> okay. i got a question from so, a friend of the show. Real, real quick. So Damon Knight, after making fun of a Van Vogt-style story, tries to write one in a book called Beyond the Barrier where he tries to have all the same elements that Van Vogt handles so expertly, like an amnesiac superhero who has to find out his true meaning, his true destiny, and so on. And it was terrible, and he couldn't do it. <laughs> After making fun of this as juvenile and as simplistic, he simply couldn't, he simply couldn't do it. Well, John, you're, you're going to like this question. A uh, friend of the show and author Jeff Dunteman asks, is Keith Lommer considered pulp? He, I don't think he wrote anything in that, in, in that time period. But he, but he, but no one's gonna. I don't think anyone's gonna claim that Keith Lommer was not writing uh, uh, rather heroic characters who were completely masculine, and uh, that he didn't have lots of color and action in his in his story. My favorite time travel story is Dinosaur Beach. I think he's. I think he covers all his bases there. So I don't say so I can't answer the question because I'm not sure I understand now what the what you guys think think pulp is, because I certainly also don't think that Keith Lommer wrote stories where the heroism was squeezed out by some desire to have uh, you know your science be more or less correct. All right. Um... We are out of time. Um, so before we take off, uh, and before I go into my closing spiel, uh, is there anything that uh, Brian or John wanted to say? Oh, I just wanted to say thank you for a very entertaining and enlightening uh, episode. <laughs> Where we didn't let you talk at all. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I thought about it a couple times, and I nah. <laughs> I have a question for the group before we, before you go into your, your closing comments, which is, have you guys read Keith Lummer? Do you know who we're talking about? I have not read any Keith Lummer. So. You, read, you read Five Fates, though. Is that the only thing of his you've read? Bolo. Yeah, Bolo. He wrote Bolo. Um, I think I've read stories set in that universe, and I probably read at least one short story he wrote, but I've never read any of his novels. If you if you like if you like uh, lean action stories where where the, where the guy's like he's like he could be a uh, a Raymond Chandler character he could be from he could be from the Maltese Falcon he could he could be from the Big Sleep set in a you know a, a hard uh, a two fisted science fiction background or his funny stories his uh 
his uh, um his uh, retief, the ambassador retief, are comically comically funny stories. Uh, the guy's a good author, and I, he I don't know if you'd consider him to be a pulp author or not, but uh, I like him a lot. Um. Okay. Um. We are out of time for today. Uh, I wanted to say thanks to everybody who turned into uh, our live chat. Thanks to everybody who uh, will eventually be listening to this show later. I want to apologize because we did sell this show as having not just John C. Wright and not just Jeffrey Jones, but also Razor Fist. Razor Fist messaged us about a half an hour before the show started. Let us know that uh, he has a family emergency. He had to go to the hospital for a family member, so he couldn't come on the show today. He did mention wanting to come on the show next week, so uh, depending on you know his schedule and things like that, he may be back next week uh also next week we are going to be reviewing because it's going to come out this week uh guardians of the galaxy 2 Very tickets my uh, co-hosts have uh, made commitments to go and check out the movie so we will be reviewing that and then discussing that next week um and it's possible even razor fist could be here i'm not promising that it's possible uh he suggested that he could come back next week so we thank everybody who turned in who tuned in and uh by the way you should check out our thursday night geek gab guidance on rpgs it is uh even though it's listed as an uh, as a special episode it is not the last episode of uh of our of that particular part of the uh podcast let me tell you what's happening here folks or at least what we what we plan on i've been um we've been doing this show now for two years and and i'm the person who generally opens and closes the show and and most of the time is uh you know is uh in charge of steering the show but both John and Brian um, have a lot of other subjects that they can discuss, they want to discuss, that brings out their particular knowledge and expertise. They haven't been able to discuss at the show because this is not a brag. It's not even a humble brag. We have so many really good guests coming on the show that it's really hard for us to do shows like we used to do in the beginning where we would just talk about uh, Dungeons & Dragons campaign or just talk about writing advice. So. And some of your guests talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, John is starting a, a string of shows on Geek Gab that are focused specifically on RPGs that he'll be hosting and he'll be running. And uh, he has us, the other hosts, as guests and other people as guests. Uh, it's all his baby. He gets to run with that. And the Thursday show was the very first one of that. It went really, really well. People were really excited about it, really enjoyed it. So if you like OSR, if you like Dungeons and Dragons, uh, if you like tabletop role playing, check it out. It was a really good show. And then Brian uh, is planning, but has not uh, scheduled just yet, shows about um, books and writing and writing advice and things like that. And then he will also be having uh, his own guests that he invites on the show to talk about that stuff. So we're looking forward to that. We're looking forward to continuing that. And, of course, we'll be doing the main Geek Gab uh, every probably every weekend or so. Hey, we're starting a network here. <laughs> <laughs> You can check out Geek Gab, by the way, if you're listening to the show for the very first time. You can check out Geek Gab on youtube.com slash Geek Gab. You can also do a search for Geek Gab on SoundCloud, on the iTunes Store, and on the Google Play Store. You can subscribe to us as a podcast and get it automatically downloaded to your computer to put on your iDevice or your Android device. We are set up to cover everything. Uh, and... Uh, or if you want to get the notifications through YouTube, be sure to click on the subscribe button and then click on the little bell so you are in our double secret subscription where you actually will get email announcements of the shows going on and starting so you won't be late. 
uh, one of our author friends of the show today was an hour late and he was sad. I'm not making this up, folks. This is really actually happened in the chat in the last uh, 15 minutes. Very sad because he wasn't able to catch the first hour of the show because uh, YouTube doesn't send you email announcements if you haven't double secret subscribed. So please click on the little bell, double secret subscribe, not for us, but for you so you get those uh, you get those announcements. Thanks for everybody for tuning in. We uh, are signing off for today. We will, of course, for those of you that are sad that the show is coming to an end, I just want to let you know, we will be back.